All right, we're continuing our study through divorce and remarriage, and today I think we're going to look at all of the Old Testament texts that kind of deal with the issue, just to discuss it a little bit, because I think there's some confusion. Often the Old Testament texts are used to somehow negate what the New Testament says, uh, which of course we've kind of looked at and said that's probably not the appropriate way of uh, going about uh, finding the truth in terms of methodology. So let's go ahead and begin in a word of prayer. Father, once again, we thank you that we can come to your word, that it is clear. Uh, Help us understand the continuity and discontinuity of the Old and New Testament, what the Old Testament might be saying, what it's not saying. Help us understand the nature of the laws that we look at, and help us understand your true intent, even in the Old Testament, uh, that, that comes out as we look through it. And then, of course, through the words of Christ and how he deals with these Old Testament texts. Father, we thank you once again and seek that you will be glorified through the obedience of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, the first one we want to look at and what's often used to try to negate what we've talked about so far in the New Testament is Exodus 21, uh, 7 through 11, really 10 and 11. And the reason why it's used is because people will argue Well, Jesus isn't meaning to comment about everything about divorce and remarriage. He's just dealing with a specific issue. We don't actually know what he says about Exodus 21, because that's a divorce text too. And Jesus says nothing about Exodus 21. So maybe he was fine with the divorce reasons for Exodus 21. He agreed with everybody on that. And he just had an issue with the way that Deuteronomy 24 was being used. And so he commented on that. Well, of course, Deuteronomy 24 is the one that's brought up to him because I would argue it's actually the only divorce law in the Torah that you have, that Exodus 21 actually is not a divorce text at all. Uh, So let's go ahead and read it. We'll start it in verse 7 of chapter 21 in the book of Exodus. If a man sells his daughter as a female servant, she will not go out as the male servants do. If she does not please her master who is designated for herself, in other words, in betrothal, he's betrothed her for himself, then he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to a foreign nation because he has dealt deceitfully with her. If he designated her for his son, then he will deal with her according to the customary rights of daughters. Now, here are the the, uh, two verses. If he takes another wife, so if he actually has taken this slave girl as his own, uh, and then he takes another wife, he must not diminish the first one's food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, then she will go out free with paying no money. Now, uh, this is seen as, well, see, that the law is saying she can divorce her husband because he's not providing for her and she can go out and this is a divorce law. And like uh, Instone Brewer will argue that, you know, whatever is, because the later rabbis will argue, whatever's true of a slave is true of a woman. And so uh, a woman can divorce for these reasons. Now, here's the problem with this whole thing. This is not a divorce law. It has nothing to do with divorce other than the fact that the guy who's married her has divorced her. Practically, he's broken the covenant. You need three things in order to make a marriage in the marriage covenant. Uh, In terms of the male providing for the female, he has to provide for her food. He has to provide for her clothing, which I would even expand into shelter in some way. 
and he has to provide for her sex uh, to share his bed with her. Those three things. By withholding them, he is breaking the covenant and he is divorcing her. Whether he gives her a piece of paper or not doesn't matter. He is divorcing her. Now, the other law, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, that we look at, requires him to give her a certificate of divorce, but that's not mentioned here. But he has, in fact, divorced her. The, the, uh, the situation that's brought up then is this. He's married her, but she was his slave. Does she have to remain in his household as his slave after he's divorced her? And the answer is no. He married her. She was his wife. Notice, even before that, we, mar- we, we uh, read that uh, if he gives the slave girl to his, his son... How does he treat her? As a slave? No. She's now a daughter. She has the rights of a daughter. Same thing. She's now a wife. She has the rights of a wife. She is not a slave anymore. She does not go back to slave status because he no longer wants to keep the covenant with her because he's found a new wife that he likes better or whatever. Um, If that occurs, if he divorces her in that way, he breaks the covenant with her, he has divorced her. That's it. It's not telling her she can divorce. She's already divorced at that point. It's telling her that she does not have to remain as a slave and he gets no money for it. She does not have to redeem herself. Literally in the Hebrew, it says there is no silver. There's no silver in it. He doesn't get any sort of of, uh, compensation at all because he's not losing a slave anymore. He made her a wife. And so because of that, she can go out. So this has nothing to do. The only thing that it might have to do is that if someone divorces you, you're free to like leave the house because they're no longer taking care of you. you. They've divorced you. That's not you divorcing them, though. They have divorced you at that point. Um, I say this all the time. Same thing. If you have someone who's threatening your life and going to kill you, then they have broken their covenant. They have divorced you. I don't care if they go down to the office and get a piece of paper. They've divorced you. Now, does that mean you're free to go remarry? No, we've just talked about all of that in the New Testament. You're not free to remarry. You're to remain on your own and hopefully maybe seek, seek reconciliation. If you can't seek reconciliation because this person's violent and they're not going to do that, then, then you'll have to remain on your own. That's it. Um, but, but should you leave the household? Yeah, you're, they divorced you. Just because... Somehow, uh, you know, you can still live in the house, but not really live because they're going to maybe kill you. Uh, That's not you divorcing them. So this is a very important point. People are like, oh, well, you're telling me that you can't even divorce in the case of abuse uh, in in terms of someone threatening your life and physical abuse. And I'm like, no, Um, but that person has divorced you and you should probably uh, leave the household and seek shelter. And so, but you are not free to divorce for any reason. I, that's why I said believers are not to divorce, period. That, that doesn't mean, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that someone who is in rebellion against the Lord might divorce you. Yeah, they might. And they don't always divorce you by giving you a piece of paper or declaring that they're divorced, you know, like, you know, Michael Scott saying, I declare bankruptcy or something. It's like, no, it doesn't matter if they declare it or not. If they're breaking the covenant perpetually, that's it. They're just going to break it. They're not going to repent of that. That's it. Then, yeah, you would, you would leave. That has nothing to do with you officially divorcing them because they have divorced you. They have sent you, sent you away in that regard. 
So this is a slave law. Now, it, it has uh, implications for the way we think about marriage and what the marriage covenant at, at its very base level in terms of uh, the physical covenant is. Um, but it's not a divorce law. So why would Jesus mention it? Uh, Jesus would agree. If someone divorces you and you're a slave, you don't have to remain a slave. But that's never brought up in Jesus' ministry. Why? Because he probably agrees. Does it have anything to do with the woman divorcing the man? No. It has something to do with the man divorcing a slave girl. And uh, she's free to go. And so I would even agree that then we would apply to a, a free woman what we apply to a slave girl in terms of if she's divorced, she doesn't have to be some servant in the household. Obviously, but that's the issue. The issue isn't whether or not she can divorce because she doesn't like the way things are going. That has nothing to do with it. He's broken the covenant. He's divorced her already. It's a matter of if he wants to keep her around as a housekeeper or something. That, and the answer is no. He doesn't. Uh, she can leave if she wants. She doesn't have to stay as a housekeeper. <clears throat> so Exodus 21 has zero to do with uh, somehow trying to get you know, some sort of um, reasons for why you can divorce and whatnot. I want you to notice also what he does to her is unjust. So his divorcing her is wicked, and that's clearly implied. And therefore, he not only does he lose his slave, he loses any sort of compensation that he paid for, for the, the woman as a slave because he's done something unjust to her. So he's not going to get anything back. This is clearly seen as wicked on his part. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. If a man marries a woman and she does not please him because he has found something... Uh, this is where the, the phrase uh, Arvat Devar is. Um, in her, then he may draw up a divorce document, give it to her, and evict her from his house. I would say he is to draw it up, uh, the way I would translate that. When she has left him, she may go and become someone else's wife. Now... I want you to notice the way this is translated first. I'm going to read this first this way. That's not actually how the Hebrew necessarily reads. When she has left him, she may go and become someone else's wife. If the second husband rejects her and then divorces her, gives her the papers and evicts her from his house, or if the second husband who married her dies, her first husband who has divorced her is not permitted to remarry her after she has become richly impure. For that is offensive to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, in reality, I think the actual, in the Hebrew, it reads, if a man marries a woman and she does not please him because he has found something arvat devar in her, and he uh, draws up a divorce document and gives it to her and evicts her from his house, and she has left him... Um, and she goes and becomes someone else's wife. So this is all the protasis, in other words. This is not, hey, if a man divorces her, then hey, she can go marry. Go, go ahead and go marry. It's not, that's not what it's saying. That's almost the way the Pharisees are reading it. To where, oh, you're, you, yeah, you have permission to do all this. Yeah, go for it. It's, uh, it's a command even. And it's like, no, no, this is part of the protasis. Um, and then there's another protasis that goes along. Uh, the second husband rejects her and then divorces her, gives her papers and evicts her from his house. Or if the second husband who married her dies, here's the apotesis. All of that is protasis. All of that is if this situation occurs, if all this stuff happens, the, the law is dealing with, 
can a man remarry the woman? That's it. That's the question that the whole thing, one through four, is answering. It's not saying, hey, if you divorce someone, then she's free to go get married, and that's great, and, and everything's fine. And No, it's just saying if all of this happens, so in other words, it's descriptive. If all of this happens, a lot of unjust stuff sounds like that's happening here. Uh, then the apotheosis occurs. That is, here's what you do. Um, her first husband who divorced her is not permitted to remarry her after she has become impure. Uh, for that is offensive to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. That's it. That's the only law there. So very important, I think, to read it first and foremost as to what it's saying. Now, what is Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 saying? What is the Arvat Devar? Well, that was the big question between Hillel and Shammai, right? Hillel thought Arvat Devar meant any matter at all. And Shammai wanted to argue, well, if it was any matter at all, it would just say Devar, the matter. Or if it was any sort of uh, you know, indecency or something, it would just say arvat or whatever, but it's arvat devar together. And so it's a specific uh, matter that has to do with nakedness. And he would ar- he argued then it was adultery. Uh, or at least people think he argued, it seems that he's arguing it's an adultery. He actually uses the term arvat devar, at least in the, like in the Mishnah. So it's a little bit, little bit difficult to know what he means by arvat devar when he's actually just repeating it. Um, he doesn't say adultery beyond that. Now, in the Sifra, there's, uh, there's a little bit of a difference in that you have a little bit more of an explanation. That may be a later tradition, though, that's then tacked on and it's said to be adultery. So we're assuming that he meant adultery by it. Um, here's the point. It cannot be adultery. It can't be adultery. Uh, it cannot be either adultery, and it cannot be uh, the the woman who's found to had sex with the man um, before marriage, and then he sleeps with her, and she doesn't bleed, and therefore he realizes she's not a virgin. Can't be either one of those. Why? Because in Deuteronomy twenty two, all of that is covered, and and if that occurs, if if that's discovered, then it's death for the woman, not. Hey, here's a certificate of divorce. Go, you're free to you know, go remarry someone else. So whatever this is, it isn't adultery. It isn't fornication, quote unquote, prostitution. It's something else. And this is impor- an important point. Um, it's something that doesn't have to do with that the woman would get a death penalty for. So it has nothing to do with her having any sort of sexual activity at all with anyone outside her husband. So the Arvat Devar has to be something else. It can't be just any matter like burning your food like Hillel said, because uh, it's Arvat. Again, I would agree with Shammai. It's, it's not just an issue at all, a matter at all. It's a naked matter. And so here's what I think is the real issue. I think uh, one of two things is going on. Either the woman is seen as richly impure in some way. Maybe she has a menstrual issue or who knows what it it may be. Or the guy just doesn't find her attractive once he sees her naked. That's the issue. And so he decides to divorce her because of that. Again, these are casuistic laws. And the protasis is almost always something that is unjust that's being done. This is seen as wrong, what this guy is doing. But Moses doesn't legislate against it. 
and we'll talk about that, why Jesus says why, and we'll, we'll mention that later. Moses doesn't legislate against his injustice, but he does legislate to take care of the woman to make sure that she is not being treated as a prostitute by the husband. Because what would happen essentially is that he sends her away. She then gets a, uh, more money from the guy because the second guy divorces her uh, you know, without some sort of good cause. She gets money from him. Either her dowry is grown or something, or she's a widow, as it mentions here, he might die. And then she has a lot of money. And then that, the first guy is like, oh, she's got a lot of money, wants to remarry her because he gets all that money. That's basically treating her like a prostitute. He's, he, he's pimping her, in, in other words. And so this, this idea that like, uh, they'd be polluting the land is often used in regard to prostitution. And so this is forbidden. He's not allowed to do it. So it's protecting the woman that she's not treated like a prostitute in that way because of this jerk who just uh, married her, did all this, and it's like, ah, I'm not really attracted to her, so he decides to divorce her. Um, this is important because when we get to the New Testament, many people are going to argue, oh, Jesus is just taking the position of Shammai. He's saying the Arvat Devar is adultery. Well, then you have Jesus misinterpreting Deuteronomy 24, when in fact, if it was adultery, it's covered by Deuteronomy 22, and she would be killed for that. That's execution. That's a capital punishment. So Jesus cannot be saying, yeah, Shammai's right. Uh, it's adultery. It can't be adultery, because as we just said, so... Either you're going to argue that Jesus is misinterpreting the scripture, or you're going to argue that Jesus is changing it. I would argue Jesus is not changing the law uh, in terms of what is right and wrong and all that sort of thing and saying, yeah, here's a new reason you can get divorced. Because that would essentially be it then. Here's a new reason you can get divorced. You can't get divorced for any other reason now. So all those old reasons are out. Why? Well, because the two will become one flesh. But here's a new reason you get divorced. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Um, again, notice, and we'll talk about this when we get there, but that's not their response to Christ. It's not, oh, okay, that's your interpretation of it? Okay, interesting. So it's the same thing as Shammai, basically. Uh, no, it's not. Instead, uh, if, if you notice, and, and well, we'll push there in a moment. I want to talk about other things first. But if you notice, this is a casuistic law again. It's not saying, hey, it's okay to do this. You're free to divorce when you uh, see your wife naked and you don't like the way she looks. No, uh, this is said, as Jesus will say later, because of the hardness of their hearts, because essentially they're not godly people. Does Jesus want you to do these things? No. Again, we'll talk about that in a moment. So uh, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 is in no way talking about a reason that Christians now today can get divorced. In no way. Um, it, it would be unjust to do it today. It was unjust doing it then, but Moses just didn't stop them from doing it. Just like the guy who treated the slave poorly and made her a wife and then he wanted to keep her in his household. Moses was protecting her, but he didn't say that, no, you can't divorce her. Now, sometimes Moses will do that. Like when, if a man rapes a woman and she has therefore no one to take care of her, he will say, you're not allowed to divorce her. You have to take care for her your whole life, as long as her father agrees, and, uh, and uh, um, you're not allowed to divorce her. 
<clears throat> but uh, but he does he does just let them go on this uh, for right now. Malachi two thirteen through sixteen, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one, referring back to the Genesis, with a portion of the spirit in their union, that's the life-giving spirit, the Ruach, in their union? And what was the one God was seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, this is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to actually translate. A lot of people don't know what it's talking about. It's difficult to get to it. It seems clear, though, as you put the difficulties together, that it's trying to say that uh, you are bound to your wife of your youth uh, because you're, the two are to become one flesh for the purpose of godly offspring. And that's why God put you together. And yet they're being faithless. Why? Because they're marrying the daughters of foreign gods. That is, they're marrying foreign women. Now, remember, at this time, they can practice polygamy. They can have more than one wife. Uh, They're marrying foreign women. Um, They're divorcing sometimes these women in order to marry those women because often everyone's not a rich person, especially after the exile. And so you can usually only take care of one woman anyway. And so if you found a new woman, you neglect your old one, you divorce her, and then uh, marry the new one. Now, so they're they're divorcing their covenant wives, as God says here. They're they're the wife, the wife of the youth by covenant divorcing them and marrying uh, unbelievers, which is apostasy. That's idolatry all over again. Um, So here they are back from the exile doing the same stuff they were doing before, even worse now, and they're wondering why God's not answering their prayers, and this is why. Now, if you'll notice in uh, verse 16, it says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her. This is a very, that's a very, uh, very soft interpretation. Literally, it's the word hate, right? So, and, and the difficulty is, is we often translate it, uh, I hate divorce, declares the Lord. Uh, for the man who uh, does this, basically, uh, he covers his garment in violence. That is Hamas, uh, anti-creational, something anti-creational. How? Because he's not going to have covenant children by marrying these women. But notice the difficulty uh, is wrapped around the word to hate, and uh, is it, it literally, I think it's a participle more uh, than anything. We ultimately don't know. It could be pointed differently. It could be a verb. So it could be he hates, uh, he hates his wife and divorces her, referring to the man. Or it could be uh, uh, I hate, as in referring to the Lord. So hating, uh, hating divorce, the Lord God says, um, meaning I hate divorce. And there's there's some uh, there's an, an emendation in terms of that that some people take, 
Either way, it doesn't really matter. It's clear the Lord is not happy what's happening here. He absolutely hates what is occurring, whether he literally is the one saying, I hate it or not. It's clear that the man covers his garments with violence. That is chaos because he is now, he's now against the covenant. He's committed apostasy. Um, he has gone against the Lord in this regard. And so um, I, either way you take it. Now, some people will say, well, so then God never, never really said, I hate divorce. He's just saying he doesn't like this particular situation. That's fine. You can get the understanding that God hates divorce from the fact of what God loves. Remember, love and hate are choices. Which one does God prefer? That would be what he loves. Which one does he not prefer? That would be that which he hates. That's what love and hate are. Again. So going back to the creation account in Genesis 2, uh, does God love the, uh, the male and female becoming one flesh and having godly offspring? Yeah. Does he hate anything that's not that? Yeah. So who cares if the verse says it or not? It's clear and implied by the very fact that uh, what God made was what God wanted. He intended, and this is Jesus's argument when we get to Matthew as well. God intended this. That's what he loves. Anything else is not what he prefer- prefers. He hates it. So do you, should you do what God hates? No, never at any time. You should always seek to do what he loves. And therefore that's you remaining in union, one with your covenant wife, the wife of your youth, regardless of whether it's this situation or any other. It has nothing to do with it. So in, in any case, in any way you translate that, you're going to see this in books brought up. And it's like, oh, well, it's not really talking about divorce in general. And it's like, right, okay, well, even if you take that view, if you're going to translate it that way, you can translate it to where it does talk about divorce all around. But you still understand the concept of God hates divorce is something that you get whether it's ever stated or not. Uh, It just comes from the implicit of what God states about marriage and his intention in the creation account anyway. Uh, I do want to note in the Old Testament, this is important. God sets the priests often to what is ideal. So even in the Old Testament, the priests are not allowed to marry a divorced woman. Leviticus 21, 6 and 7, they must be holy to their God. They must not profane the name of their God because they are the ones who present the Lord's gifts, the food of their God. Therefore, they must be holy. They must not take a wife defiled by prostitution. Now, remember, prostitution is pretty much allowed. It's, there's no law against prostitution in the Old Testament. But it's always seen as something that God hates. Again, once again, God can allow things that he hates. And so prostitution is allowed, but he hates it. Here's another thing that he allows, but we just talked about he hates. Um, Nor are they to take a wife divorced from her husband. For the priest is holy to his God. You're a priest, right? As a Christian? Um, now, I, I, obviously, you're not the, uh, the particular priesthood, the special priesthood. You're the general priesthood. But the point is, is that in the specific priesthood, the particular priesthood, you do often have God relate these things that uh, he doesn't like stuff that even though he's allowed it. And right before, that's why I mentioned prostitution. Very clear that God sees prostitution as a 
pollution, as something dirty, as something he doesn't like. And yet, he doesn't say, if you commit prostitution, I'm going to kill you. There's no law against prostitution. Um, In the same way, I'd argue for divorce, and I think that's what Jesus is arguing. God hates divorce. God sees it as absolutely wrong and bad, but he allows for it because he's trying to push his people toward holiness. And even in the minimized law that he gives them, which is essentially just a little bit ramped up from the other ancient Near Eastern laws, he doesn't even make them really do much more than another ancient Near Eastern law would do, like the Code of Hammurabi or Eshnunna or Lipit Ishtar or any of these laws or the Assyrian law codes. It's really, it's not much more than these. It is more, but it's not much more. And the point seems to be is that you people can't even do this law. This is why I'm not a theonomist. When theonomists talk about, well, this is the perfect law, it's, it's everything. And it's like, no, it isn't. That's, do you not understand the nature of the law? The law is a minimized law that the people couldn't even obey that, showing how depraved humanity really is. That it couldn't even obey things that like the rest of the world had. This is one of God's comments in Ezekiel, that you can't even obey the laws of men, much more my laws. So, no, this isn't like, oh, it's just got everything in it. No, it doesn't have everything in it. God is passing over a lot of things to show that you guys can't even obey this This law that's so much like these other pagan laws. Because pagans let you divorce and remarry, and so God doesn't make any law about it. Pagans let you participate in prostitution, so God doesn't make any law about it. And yet they can't even obey the things that pagans don't allow. Why? Because that's how depraved humanity is and in need of a savior. That's why. So... uh, the priest then shows, or the law of the priest really shows that God actually hates prostitution and God actually hates divorce. Um, and, that's, and that's why he does not want his priest doing it. Now he ramps it up for the, the high priest. The high priest is not allowed to even marry like someone who's widowed. Um, and the priests in Ezekiel, who are meant to be almost like as holy as high priests, uh, I think the, the Zadokites, uh, are in fact not allowed, except if it's, again, like a fellow priest, his, he dies and his wife is left, and then he can marry her or whatever. But, but that's, you know, it's, so it's ramping up to where, you know, even second marriages after the widow may not be, but that's the high priest, and that rep- represents Christ more than uh, the general priesthood and, and uh, who we are. The regular law against the priest, not marrying a prostitute and not marrying a... Uh, divorced woman, I think, does apply to us in those ways. Ezra 10, 2 through 4. Now, this it should be read in light of Malachi because this is what's going on at the same time. Ezra and Malachi are kind of uh, in that same situation there. So then, this is from 10, 2 through 4 of Ezra. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, from the descendants of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the local peoples. Nonetheless, there is still hope for Israel in this regard. Therefore, let us enact a covenant with our God to send away, that is to divorce, all these women and their offspring in keeping with your counsel, my Lord, and that of those who respect the commandments of our God. And let it be done according to the law. 
Get up for this matter concerns you. We are with you. Be strong and act decisively. So what they do is they decide to divorce their wives. And you might say, well, this is seen as a godly thing. Well, yeah, again, in light of what we were just read from Malachi, it is a godly thing because they have divorced the wives of their uh, youth who are actually covenant women, and they've uh, married these foreign wives instead. Um, I, I tell people all the time, what is more creational in this situation? Polygamy is allowed. So divorce and remarriage, again, even though God doesn't like it, he allows it, is allowed, and therefore it's not seen as adultery at this point. And so what's better, to uh, marry uh, the covenant woman that you have as your wife of your youth and raise up covenant children, or or to uh, not divorce no matter what, even though you've married pagan women and raise up their pagan children. Well, obviously the point is the godly offspring that Malachi talks about. So it's against the God of the covenant to have done what they did in marrying these foreign wives. So it's better than to send them away. Now, this is different than Paul's advice in 1 Corinthians 7. Why? Well, because polygamy is no longer allowed. And if you divorce and remarry, you're committing adultery now, according to what Jesus says. So now it is adultery uh, in the eyes of God, and it's pronounced to you to be adultery. So now it's a law to you. That's very different than before. And so uh, Paul says, no, stay with the person, because the most creational thing there then is go ahead and stay with them. Uh, They become one with you and through your federal headship. Uh, you be committed to Christ, and then your children become saints in that way. That's the better way of doing it in the situation where polygamy is not allowed and all of that. And it's, it's uh, adultery to, to remarry. That's more creational. It's less creational in the Old Testament when you're just holding on to pagan wives with their pagan gods, and they're not really agreeing to submit to you, you know, in terms of Christ, and your children are you know, pagans and all that then it'd be better to actually send them away in the Old Testament. So that's why you get a distinction between the the two there. Finally, why is this in the Old Testament? I kind of already commented on this. Let's read it from Mark uh, 10, 4 through 9. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. So this was permitted, Jesus. See, it's in the law. And we're allowed to divorce and remarry. But Jesus said to them, who wrote this commandment for, or uh, he wrote this commandment for you because of your hard hearts. So notice, he didn't write this commandment for you uh, because he was just trying to convey something else like, you know, divorce for adultery or whatever. No, he wrote this because of the hardness of your hearts. You weren't supposed to do it. It was wrong. And therefore, my people who follow me, my disciples, are not to do it. From the beginning of creation, he made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. Uh, Quoting the ancient versions there, the two becoming one flesh, the ancient translations. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one divorce. No one is to divorce. That's it. So... uh, There's more in the Old Testament in terms of people try to make the argument that, well, God divorces Israel and all the passages. You know, I gave your your mother a certificate of divorce and sent her away and all those sorts of things. Here's the thing, though. This is used rhetorically in the prophets of God. God doesn't actually ever divorce Israel. He disciplines Israel. 
He sends Israel away for a time, quote unquote, but he's always watching over, always providing for, always looking for the preservation of Israel. And in fact, we're Israel, right? Israel not only survives and God marries Israel and remains married to Israel, but he then grafts the Gentiles into Israel so that all Israel will be saved. So that God doesn't actually divorce Israel. This is rhetoric that's used in the prophets. So the whole argument that, well, God divorces Israel. So, I mean, you're saying God's doing something wrong. Therefore, we can do it. It's like, no, 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 no. God is using rhetoric of divorce to talk about that I'm not going to take care of you. In reality, I should take care of you. But then you always get after that, but I am going to take care of you. Uh, I'm going I'm to be harsh with you, but then I'm going to come back and I'm going to accept you and I'm going to preserve you because of my covenant with you, his marriage covenant. Because of my promises to you, I am going to take care of you. I am going to uh, bring you back again. I am going to give you children again. I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to divorce you. I'm not going to permanently divorce you. So if anything, you might, you might want to view it as a separation, even if that, um, but definitely not a divorce, which is a more permanent thing. And he certainly doesn't go marry someone else. It's always Israel. And that's Paul's argument in Romans. It's Israel that God is saving. All Israel will be saved. Jew and Gentile. So that pretty much makes up the Old Testament texts that deal with divorce. And what is the reason why God allows them in the Old Testament? Well, I essentially said it already. It's because God is giving them a bare minimum law. He's allowing them to do things from the stubbornness of their hearts because they can't even obey that minimum law. And so he looks over lots of things. But when Christ comes and the Spirit of God now it dwells within us, empowers us with a new nature to then understand what God really desires. He, de- he demands his disciples, his Christians, actually live in accordance with what God loves, according to the Old Testament and the New. And what does God love? The two become one flesh, and that's it. The, the, the desire of godly offspring, that's it. That's what God loves, and that's what we who love God need to love. So can we then use Old Testament texts to argue that here's more reasons we can get divorced and remarried. Here's more reasons we can do things that God hates. No, that's an inappropriate use of the Old Testament. You're now arguing with the Pharisees against Jesus. And you're saying to Jesus, but, 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 but the Old Testament said, and Jesus is saying, that's because of the hardness of their hearts. Don't become hard like them. If you divorce and remarry, or you marry a woman who's been divorced, you are committing adultery. I require you to love what I love now, what God loves. And God loves once in a lifetime, you get married, you stay together, that one flesh union being together, so long as they both live. And that's it. That's the desire. And that's what we should desire. And that's how we should approach the Old Testament texts of divorce and remarriage. Let's go ahead and bow in a word of prayer. Father, again, we just thank you for your word. We, we thank you for the holistic understanding of your word rather than verses taken out of context and pitted against one another and used to somehow justify things that we want to do. 
Lord, again, let us look at these things in context. Let us look at them in, in terms of the continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Testament. What you even communicated in the Old Testament that you loved and hated, even though you may have allowed for it. Let us not try to walk on the edge of holiness and just do what we think we might possibly be permitted to do, but rather look toward what you love and then go toward the center of that, that we might be right smack dab in the middle of the things that you love doing and believing the things that are true and good to the core. Father, I pray that you give us a spirit of teachableness to your word, that we might live it out in truth, that we might glorify you, that we might love you so much and not love ourselves over you so as to dismiss your word or twist it in order to get what we want out of it. Father, we pray all of this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.